when Luther wrote his 95 Theses, by which he protested against the corruption that infiltrated the Roman Catholic Church, the first three sentences that he wrote, the first three theses, have to do with repentance. Here's what Luther wrote. Here's how he began the 95 Theses. When our Lord and Master Jesus said, Repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. This word, referring to repentance, cannot be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance, that is, confession and satisfaction as administered by the clergy. Yet, it does not mean solely inner repentance, Such inner repentance is worthless unless it produces various outward mortification of the flesh. In other words, Luther, as he began protesting against the corruption of the church in his century, he began defining and clarifying what true repentance is, what the biblical notion of repentance is. It's neither just a one-time act, It's neither just a religious ritual that you just come to church to to get a dose of repentance from the priest and then you go back and do your, your thing. It's not even just an inner experience that just stays inside of you without producing an outward visible manifestation. Repentance is a total life experience that begins in our hearts when we trust in Christ. And then it causes external visible fruit in our lives. Why do I stay here and talk about the repentance? Because in this chapter of the judgments, what is desired is that the people of the earth would repent. That's a desired ideal. What I'm surprised today, dear friends, is that the notion of repentance is a foreign concept not only to the world, to those outside the church. It is sadly a foreign concept in many churches today. Calling people to repent and to repentance sounds strange, even in the church. Many churches have substituted the call to repentance with a call to invite Jesus in your heart. And the two are not the same thing. Acceptance of Jesus into your heart that does not produce repentance is worthless. It's meaningless. Friends, is it possible that God's people have actually forgotten to call the world to repentance? If you share the gospel, and I hope you do, think about the last time you shared it. Think about the time when you had an opportunity to to call someone, to give the gospel in a, full, in a full call, did you call that person to repent? How often do you make the call to repentance as part of the gospel message? Are you sharing a gospel that is not calling people to repentance? I am saddened to have heard testimonies from people who have heard about Jesus, but have never heard the call to repentance. And I wonder, who is proclaiming Jesus without calling them to repent? Who dare do that? Friends, if Luther 
tried to reform the church in his day by trying to, to redefine the true biblical meaning of repentance. I'm afraid that we today, we need a reformation not to define the meaning of repentance, but to reintroduce it as part of our churches, as part of our vocabulary, as part of what it means to turn to the Lord. The people of the earth were supposed to do this act of repenting and turning to the Lord in repentance, but they're not doing it. Is it possible that, they, that we as a church have failed to actually talk about the call to repentance? The people of the kingdom of the beast were also more preoccupied with their pains than considering to turn to God. This shows us, dear friends, that suffering does not necessarily turn people towards God. It's true that in many situations, troubles that we experience in our lives make us fragile, show us how fragile we are, and that we are not in control of our lives, that there is someone else on whom we must depend, and that someone else is God. Trials and tribulations can make us vulnerable and can make us, you know, bring us to a place in which we are more ready to listen to the Lord. But friends, it is possible that suffering can also make some people more stubborn against God. In these verses, the people of the earth care more about their pain and suffering than about the lesson that God is trying to teach them through these judgments. So they begin cursing God and they refuse to repent and glorify God. In their response, they show, in their desire to continue to stay stubborn against God, and despite his manifestations of power, they show they truly belong to the kingdom of the beast because they do exactly what the beast does. No matter how great the judgments of God are, the beast and his followers continue to resist God. The first point we see in these judgments is that God's judgments target the beast's kingdom. Let's look at the final two bowls of judgment, and we'll see what each of them show for, to us. The second point that we see in the sermon, which comes from the sixth bowl of judgment, is that God's judgments call us to stay awake. God's judgments call us to stay awake. I'm not talking about physical awakeness. Some of you might be tired right now, and you might be tempted to close an eye or half an eye. That's not the kind of wakefulness that this passage is talking about. The sixth bowl is significantly longer and more complex than the previous five. The setting of this, of this bowl of judgment helps us to understand what is going on and what, God is, what does it mean that God is calling us to stay awake. Here the unholy trinity appears again active in drawing the nations and the kings of the earth together for battle against the Lord. But in order to reunite all the kings of the earth together in the ancient world, there was one major obstacle, the Euphrates River. It was the largest known river at that time that separated the western world from the eastern world. It was also the eastern border of the Roman Empire. And notice that part of God's judgment in pouring out the sixth bowl is to dry up the Euphrates River and to make the kingdom kings of the east to come together with the kings of the west. While God is removing the obstacle of the Euphrates River, it is the unholy trinity that deceives the king of the earth to unite together in battle. 
Notice verses 13 and 14. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Here's the unholy trinity again. The dragon, the beast, the false prophet. By the way, the false prophet is, is, the, is the second beast that we have seen in chapter 13. The false prophet um, and the other two are sending out evil spirits that have the form of frogs. It's not a coincidence that the plagues of frogs in Egypt, in Exodus, one of the, the plagues of the frogs was one of the signs that the magicians of Pharaoh were also able to replicate in Exodus 8, 7. In Revelation 16, the frog-looking creatures are demonic spirits. They go around through the whole earth to the kings of the earth. They unite them. Despite their success in uniting together against God, the day of their battle is described not as a great day of their battle, not even as a great day of the dragon, it is described as a great day of God the Almighty. But notice also the place where they're gathered. Look at verse 16. They, are assemble, they assemble them at a place that is in Hebrew called Armageddon. Now, there's so many theories about what this word means and what this place refers to. I am not going to go through all the options. I will tell you one that, at least in my view, appears as a plausible explanation why the name Armageddon is used here and what, what it symbolizes. It's a symbolic name, and its symbolism is related to the Hebrew word from which it comes. In Hebrew, it means the hill or the, the, the mountain of Megiddo. At Megiddo, there was an interesting battle in the Old Testament when King Josiah faced the army of Pharaoh in battle. And Pharaoh and his army easily killed King Josiah. You can read about that account in Second Chronicles chapter 35. Pharaoh's easy victory over God's people at Megiddo could be a pattern that the beast hopes to accomplish again against God and his people. In other words, the reference to Armageddon could be, could be based on a pattern of what happened at the, at the hill or the valley of Megiddo when, when Pharaoh and his army had an easy victory against God's people. The beast is trying to get the kings of the earth to think that they can oppose God and have an easy victory against God. But God shows his power in ways similar to the Exodus, but in a worldwide scale. When all the kings of the nations are deceived into gathering against God and his people, we might wonder, what chance, what responsibility do God's people have? And there is a responsibility we have, and that responsibility is tucked in for us. It's placed for us in verse 15. Verse 15, look at it. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. This verse has given interpreters much trouble. Some commentators even think that this verse is out of place, that it was introduced later by an editor because it seems to interrupt the flow of the, of the judgment of the sixth bull. It's true that it interrupts 
this judgment of the sixth bowl, but it interrupts it for the purpose of telling God's people what is our responsibility in the midst of what is to come. The call that God gives here is to stay awake. Blessed, blessed is the one who stays awake. In other words, the frogs, the three frogs, have given the kings of the earth a call to battle. It's a call of the frogs. But here is a call of God. It's a call to stay awake. To be aware of the cosmic conflict that exists between God and the dragon. Between the people that the dragon is able to get to follow him and the people of God. Oh friends, God here is saying that his son Jesus is coming like a thief. Jesus used the illustration of a thief earlier in the book to describe to a church that Jesus called to wake up. In one of the churches of the seven churches of Revelation, in Revelation 3.3, 3, Jesus wrote to the church of Sardis and said the following, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Spiritually speaking. Wake up. Again, spiritually speaking, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. This picture of Jesus coming as a thief is repeated again in Revelation 16. But here, it is repeated to give the blessing. Blessed, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. What does it mean to stay awake? What does it mean for you and I, my dear friends, if you are a believer, to stay awake? First, if you're not a believer, if you're not a follower of Jesus, your first responsibility is to repent of your sins. Come to Christ and follow him. If you are a believer... Your responsibility and my responsibility is to stay awake. What does that mean? Well, it has to do with what is described in the bowl of the sixth judgment. The unholy trinity is calling the kings of the earth to battle against God. The world, in other words, is set to oppose God. Those who stay awake live through this world, aware that the world is not seeking to please God, the world is not trying to help us live for God. The world is not a good alliance for us in our following of God. The world will only try to make us oppose God. The world is only trying to lure us to veer off the path of ongoing repentance and ongoing glorifying of God. The world is not an ally for us as we seek to worship God. Being awake is recognizing the, where the battle line is between the world and God's kingdom. To stay away, awake is to have a spiritual discernment and to refuse the path of compromising with a beast's idolatries and with a beast's agenda to oppose God and instead to seek to glorify God. Being awake, spiritually speaking, includes awareness of how you and I are tempted to join the beast's army and how by our way of life, by the choices we make, 
it is possible to act as if we are siding with God's enemy. It is as if you are putting on the jersey or the, the, the equipment of the enemy's army and acting as if you are on that side even though you think you are on God's side. These judgments are calling us to awake and recognize we cannot live in that kind of world with sleepy spiritual drowsiness. Wake up, congregation. Wake up, dear believers. Don't take the path of just easy believism or superficial following Jesus, thinking that that this world is a good haven and a good ally for us as we follow God. It is not. The beast and its kingdom has gotten the world to oppose God. So we are in enemy territory as we follow God. We are living in enemy territory as we follow God. Follow Him with vigilance. Follow Him with care. Be aware of the snares. Be aware of the traps. Be aware of the ways in which the devil and this world entices us to compromise. What is at stake if someone does not remain awake? It is shame and dishonor. As if one was exposed without having clothes on. In the sixth bowl, we see that God's judgments are meant to awaken Christians from our sleepiness. They are not written from the world outside the church. They are written for the world inside the church. Finally, the last point we see is that God's judgments bring the end. Notice what verse 17 says. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. Now, the one speaking here must be God. It is God who says it is done. You say, how do we know that? Because in chapter 15, uh, we saw how when God began pouring out these, these judgments, that the glory, and the, the glory and the smoke of the temple was so full and so filled the temple that no one was allowed to enter the temple until these judgments were done. Therefore, the only one who's still in the, in the temple present is God. If there's a voice coming out of the temple, it is a voice of God who says, it is done. What does it mean that it is done? What will happen at the very end of these judgments? It's not merely that God's judgments are done, but also that the earth is done because God is coming to the earth. Verses 17 through 21, we see three effects that are associated with the ending of these judgments. And these effects is that God is coming to the earth, that the, that the great city will be destroyed, and all creation with it. And finally, that the destruction of everything will be so severe that people will continue to stay and oppose God. God's judgments bring the end. You say, how do we see God's coming here with these final judgments. So look at verse 18. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake. These, this language functions like a logo in the book of Revelation. Now, you know what a logo is? It's a picture that symbolizes or represents a company or an organization. If you see the sign of a swoosh, that resembles an inverted wing. That symbol stands for Nike. 
wherever you see that symbol, you're thinking Nike product. This language here in verse 18 functions like a logo of God's manifestation of his presence. So wherever you see there are flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, logo, God is present. You see that in chapter 4 when the throne of God shows up. These also show up at the end of the seventh seal, at the end of the seventh trumpet, and now at the end of the seventh bowl. It's a way of saying the presence of God is descending on the earth. God is coming on the earth. But what is happening when God is coming on the earth? Destruction. And the first destruction, interestingly, is the destruction of the great city. The earthquake splits in three, the great city. And then it's not only the great city, but it's also all the other cities of the nations. The great city refers to Babylon, and not, not to the physical city of Babylon. This is a, a pictorial, this is a symbolic city referring to the, Babel, to the city of the kingdom of the beast, or the city of the earth. We will see later in chapters 17 and 18 a, sm- a slow description of the destruction of Babylon. But here it is simply said, the great city has been split in three. It will not remain intact. The citizens of the this, of this city, those who belong to the city, will not be able to live life in it the way they used to. God will make Babylon drink the cup of the wine of his wrath. The great earthquake affected not only, not only the cities of the nations, but all creation. In verse 20, there's an amazing picture. Every island fled away and no mountains were, fa- were to be found. Friends, think about what this means. This is, a, this is a pictorial image. That the coming of God will be so monumental for the earth that what seems to be the most unmovable objects on this, on this earth, the mountains. What seems to be so unmovable will not be found anymore. They will be affected to the place to the point that there will be no trace of them. It's as if the entire creation will hit a reset button and start from ground zero. Nothing will be left standing. Friends, if the mountains will not be able to stand at the coming of God to the earth, what hope, what chance do we hope we will have if we try to face that day on our own strength opposing God? What hope if the mountains cannot stand? And then there's a final picture that along with the earthquake comes a great deal of hail. The seventh bowl of judgment closes with a picture of the extremely large hail. Look at verse 21. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of hail because the plague was so severe. The judgment of this seventh bowl is the same as the seventh plague against Egypt. Only much, much larger. Hail of a hundred pounds destroys everything. And that's the point here. Nothing will remain untouched by the destruction that the judgment of God will bring against the earth. And the earth is, the the hail is so severe that it still leads people to curse God. And in pointing out their continued opposition to God, 
the people of the earth show that they are following the pattern set by Pharaoh and his servants. Remember how Pharaoh continued to persist against God and continued to oppose God no matter how big the plagues were? Well, it's exactly the pattern we see here. The people of the earth are like little pharaohs. No matter how, how great the judgment is, they will stay the course of their persistent resistance against God. Friends, how great and deep is the depravity of the human heart to leave us not only stubborn in our refusal against God, but also proud in it, thinking that our kingdom is greater than God's kingdom, thinking that our words are greater and more powerful than God's word, thinking that our curse can somehow affect the God who is just wiping out the mountains. Friends, the seventh bowl of judgment thus closes on the sad picture of the people of God cursing, of the people of the earth cursing God. The elements that we see in these judgments show us that in the end of, at the end of the age, some people will simply remo- remain unmoved by their own choice. They will remain stubborn in their refusal against God. I wonder on which side do we find ourselves living our life. If we find ourselves lured by the beast and considering the entailments and the the snares of the kingdom of this world, consider carefully how God will deal with the kingdom of this world and consider that destiny as you are considering whether or not you should compromise in the next time you are faced with a temptation. Consider where that path leads. Consider the utter destruction that it will bring anyone to pray all of us, and none of us uh, would be found on the wrong side of the battle lines when that day comes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you reveal your judgments towards us because you are just and you are gracious. And even these judgments, you reveal them to us so that we might not be enticed to follow the snares of the kingdom of the beast. Father, we pray and ask that you would rekindle in us a desire to follow you, to live a life of ongoing repentance and ongoing faith in a way that brings you glory and glory to you alone. We pray that you would prepare us for that great day. In the name of Christ we pray.